it's almost like my slogan really like you are responsible for your own pleasure and it really shocks people because they kind of then think like wait so my partner doesn't have to focus on my pleasure and it's like no no no, that's not what it means what it means is like you have to take some responsibility for it your partner can't read your mind so you need to be able to explain or explore express what you want what gives you the most pleasure and then your partner can support you in that but you ultimately are responsible from women's health australia this is uninterrupted a podcast where we share candid chats on all aspects of well-being so that you can live a healthier more empowered life i'm editor-in-chief lisa gebelagen if there's one thing we all deserve a bit more of in life it's pleasure and our guest today is going to help us get exactly that Christina Rafe is a sex therapist and sexual wellness expert for Womanizer. In this episode, we talk about how to better communicate what you want in the bedroom and tackle the first step in your pleasure quest, how to discover what it is that you actually like. We also talk about what to do if you and your partner have different libidos and how to manage painful sex. Now, we recently did a survey of our women's health audience And when it comes to sex and relationships, the number one thing they wanted to know about is how to communicate their needs to their partner more effectively. Now, this is a massive topic, and I know it's hard to just answer um, over a podcast. An abridged version. (laughs) Yes, the abridged version. I mean, let's start with what would the first step be in doing that? I see so often in clinic, like people coming in and saying like, you know, we're not having um, the sex that we want to be having and I'm not being touched in this certain way or whatever it is. And I ask that person, okay, well, what is it that you want? And they're like, well, I don't know. I just assume that my partner will know because they're a mind reader and, you know, what have you based on what limited sex education we've actually all had. So firstly, like the most important thing is like, actually, what do you want? You know, understanding on an individual level, what is it that you want or need? And that's anything from, you know, what environment um, is a turn on for you? What are your turn ons and turn offs? What is it that actually arouses and excites you before you've even had physical touch, right? And then from a physical perspective, what types of touch do you actually enjoy? What is it that actually feels the best for you? Because particularly for vulva owners, it can be so different. There's not like a textbook that we can read, you know, where it says these follow these five steps and that's what pleasure is. It's so individual. And so really understanding for yourself what it is that you need and what you want and what feels the best for you uh, is really the first step in being able to communicate that with a partner. Because if we don't know, then what are we actually trying to say? And I guess that kind of discovery really comes when you're by yourself or you could I guess you could explore with a partner as well but totally but you're so right that for most people the sort of safest most comfortable and informative way to learn about what you like is to yeah have some solo play sessions and I mean solo play from a physical perspective to learn about the types of touch the locations on your body and not just your genitals but everywhere but also some sort of reflection um, and maybe exploration of what are those things that happen that that arouse us before we even engage in sexual contact with ourselves or with a, with another person, so with a partner, um, you know. So what turns me on? Like, what do I know about my sexuality and my eroticism? 
And that is even pre-solo exploration. But it's really like sort of something that we need to, um, if we want to learn more about what we want, we need to prioritize a bit of time to reflect and to let our imagination and our fantasy run wild or to explore with erotica or whatever it might be to help us learn about ourselves and what it is that we need. What examples do you have of places that people can go to online or through apps or just somewhere where they can start that self-discovery? Because I think maybe some people haven't really asked themselves these questions in many years, if ever. Absolutely. And like in many cases, it's if ever, like if I ask that question, you know, what do you know about your sexuality, about your body? Most people are like, I don't know, like just I have a body and, you know, this is what it looks like. So, yeah, some really good resources. So OMG, yes, is just such a fantastic resource because, you know, as I said, everyone is individual and particularly for vulva owners, there's such variation in types of pleasure and touch. But OMG, yes, have done so, so much research across, I think, 20,000 women of all ages um, and have identified patterns in pleasure for many vulva owners. Um, So the things that, you know, I guess they see coming up again and again when they're interviewing 20,000 people, um, certain techniques or types of touch or locations of touch uh, that support them in, in having maximum pleasure, achieving orgasm if that's the goal and so forth. So that sort of is, you know, a key piece. And that is relevant to anyone who has a vulva, anyone who wants to pleasure a vulva. You know, I recommend that to couples, to individuals, like to anyone who might want to learn more about that. Other resources, I suppose, outside of the physical touch, when we talk about eroticism is, you know, listening to audio erotica or watching some ethical pornography, if that feels comfortable and identifying, you know, there are certain things that you might hear that you think like, oh no, like that's not interesting to me. And other things that you think, oh, you know, that's doing something and I'm feeling a certain way about that. So ways that you can explore that. So I know on Spotify, there's a um, audio desires company. They actually have a website which has, you can pay sort of a subscription service and get full stories, but they're really good starting point because they have sort of short snippets, like 15 minutes or 10 minutes or so of various different types of erotica. So looking at all different types of fantasy. Um, So you can really explore there and sort of see what tickles your fancy. And that's like sort of a nice way to learn about it. But ultimately, really is that personal, it is about that personal level. So considering what types of touch you actually know, you know, you could look at OMG, yes. uh, And then maybe use that as sort of a framework to guide, you know, your own solo touch, but you might come up with something that's totally different to anything that you see or you hear about. It's all about experimentation. Exactly. As with anything, right? It's like practice makes perfect. Not that there's any such thing as perfect sex, but if we, if we don't know how to talk about it and we don't know how to do it, then, you know, yeah, we really need to sort of learn that if we want to experience those things. Other than the genital area, when you talk about physical touch, is, are there surprising areas of physical touch that some people listening would think, oh, I never even thought about that as like something that would give me pleasure? So, uh, of course, we have sort of our standard erogenous zone. So, like the places on our body where there's a larger cluster of nerve endings. So, that would be things like our lips, our nipples, um, you know, inner thigh, all of those sort of standard ones. Toes, obviously feet. There's there's a lot of people out there who really like toe touching. The earlobe is, is an interesting one that's not necessarily associated or acknowledged as an erogenous zone but that a lot of people describe, you know, like a little nibbling 
or a little tickling of the earlobe. And, you know, I think that's probably close proximity to the sort of neck area and how we sort of assign that to sensuality, sort of one that I hear kind of coming up again and again. But for each individual person, you know, for someone that it might be their hands being stroked in a certain way feels really relaxing or sensual or sexually relevant, you know, underarms, inner thigh, really anywhere. And I guess that's sort of the joy of sex and pleasure is that like your whole body really can be an erogenous zone. Um, and so really exploring that, whether it's on your own or with a partner and and different types of touch, right? Soft, firm, maybe using temperature, so warm oil or ice cubes. You know, there's so many different ways we can experience sensation. Now, going back to the idea of being able to communicate better with a partner during partnered sex, say step one, you've kind of worked out what it is that you like and don't like. How then do you bring that up with a partner? Because I feel like a lot of experts do suggest communication is key. But then when I talk to everyday people, they're like, I have no idea how to do it. (laughs) How do I bring it up to my partner? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess there's sort of two contexts to bring up sex, right? So there's outside of a sexual experience and then within a sexual experience. And so outside of a sexual experience, there's various forms, right? If someone feels really, really uncomfortable talking, bringing it up, going, hey, let's talk about sex, then maybe, you know, starting with a text message, I want to talk a little bit more around this, you know, when could be a good time. Um, or maybe it's writing a letter or writing something if, if really that verbal communication feels really, really inaccessible. But usually what I suggest to people is, yeah, say you've got this groundwork of what it is that you know that you want. Um, maybe if it's even just one or two things that you're identifying that you want more of is to practice saying it to yourself. So like building that confidence, you know, none of us learnt, we didn't learn any of this stuff in school. We never learn a language about sex, really, except for don't get STIs and, you know, don't get pregnant, basically, as a 15-year-old girl growing up in Australia. That's pretty much the scope of it. So we really need to sort of learn it like a new language. And so if it feels really daunting to bring sex up with a partner, then, you know, what is it that you're actually trying to say? And then maybe it's writing it down for yourself, saying out loud, you know, 10 times in a row, I find people think this is a bit silly, but it actually works really well because the more that we say something, the more that we talk about it, the easier it becomes, you know. And so if we, for example, like, you know, some of the frameworks of sentences that I like to use with people is, you know, I love it when blah, blah, blah. I would really, it turns me on so much when you do X, Y, Z. I would really love more of blah. So, you know, framing those sentences when you're practicing them to yourself first or maybe practicing them with a therapist or a close friend or something is framing them in those ways. So you can really insert anything that you want in with a, it turns me on so much. I love it when, or even like, I'm not enjoying blah so much. Can we do whatever else instead. So practicing framing it in a way of how you would actually communicate that with a partner and getting comfortable with sort of how that language feels for you and whether it feels like, you know, using it in the way that you speak. And then actually being able to sort of strike up a conversation, whether it's starting, you know, I'd really love to talk about our sex life. I'm really enjoying it. And I think that there's more things that I'm learning about myself that I'd love to incorporate. So coming at it from that sort of positive framework, not 
I don't like the sex we're having or you're doing wrong. <laughs> That's not a turn on for anyone. <laughs> no, absolutely. And especially if we have a partner who has a penis and they have a ego, which is, you know, part of our sort of social construct, that framing something in that way is probably not going to end very well for anyone. So really coming at it for, you know, what is it that's working and what is it that I want more of or what could make it even better, you know, and, and if we don't necessarily have specifics uh, or maybe we have one or two specifics, a point that we want to get across to our partner, we can open conversations generally, you know, so asking that question, what could make our sex life even better for you or what do you love that we already do and maybe what would you like to do differently? You know, is there anything that you'd like more of um, or is there anything that isn't working right now? So opening the questioning, you know, in a way that's like, let's talk about this in a two-way capacity, not me telling you what, what you're not doing or me telling you what I need, you know, if that feels a bit uncomfortable because we're not used to asking for what we need or what we want, then, you know, those sort of broader questions can really help to open that conversation and then allow space to throw in, oh, yeah, I really love it when blah, blah, blah. Well, this is, I'm really loving that we're doing, we're having sex in the shower more, you know, um, is there somewhere else in the house we could have sex? Because I really like doing it outside of the bedroom sometimes. What about for couples who have been in a relationship for what feels like a million years and <laughs> their sex life is basically non-existent anymore? How would they bring up their conversation then? Well, I guess the, the first thing that I sort of think of uh, with a question like that is what is the motivation to, like, say, increase frequency or increase excitement or, you know, mix it up a bit or something like that? Because I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that if two people in a relationship or if however many people are in the relationship are happy with the amount of sex or with the sex that they're having, then, like, n no one else needs to worry about sort of whether that's, you know, acceptable or enough or normal because there is no such thing. But if there is a partner, if there is one person or both people in a relationship who want something different or who want a bit more frequency or, yeah, who want to sort of find something um, more exciting to do, then opening that conversation really in a similar sort of way, you could, you could even say like, you know, how are we feeling about our sex life? And sort of framing it in a way where they can have an opportunity to respond and open conversation rather than approaching with like, I'm not happy with our sex life. You know, so, so what is working, if anything, and it might be we follow this same sexual script, which a lot of people in long-term relationships do, and it might work, right, for both people. It might feel really good. It's the, it's the position that supports, you know, both partners in being to have, able to have an orgasm, and that's great, um, but maybe it's getting a little bit same old, right? But opening with, like, I really love that we know so much about each other, you know, in these positions that we can really maximise our pleasure here. Is there more that we could be learning about each other, about ourselves? Well, something that you touched on briefly then was like whether one person in the relationship wants more frequency, for example. That's a big part of that question about like partners who have different libidos. So how, as a therapist, do you handle this when one person would like to have a lot more sex and the other person doesn't? Mm, this is the most common reason why couples present to therapy, like to sex therapy, is for this reason. And, and you know, we're all different. So it would be pretty 
unrealistic to expect that we would have the same libido as our partner at all times, um, you know, morning, noon, night, certain days of the week, etc. Like it's an ongoing issue for a lot of couples and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just acknowledging that we're two different people. What I see in session is that when couples present with different libidos, it seems to be that the person with the low libido is the person who is assumed to have the issue. And I use issue in inverted commas. You know, the lower libido person tends to take on responsibility, um, like they are the one who has like the wrong libido, right? And that their higher libido partner is the one that has the right libido. But the reality is like there is no such thing as a normal libido and the issue is actually that it's different, right? It's not that it's this person's libido is too low um, or too high. It is actually that there's just that difference there. So with anything else in life, right, the goal is to find like a, a happy medium, some sort of a compromise that can satisfy both partners, you know, and, and in relationship we, we negotiate and we compromise on so many different things on where we live on where kids go to school you know we we negotiate on pretty much everything that we don't agree upon with our partners and that's very normal but when it comes to sex it seems to be you know it's not possible to compromise or find a happy medium it's like I want this you want that you know the end and certainly there's a lot of things that can be done to support libido whether that be a lower libido or a higher libido if we want to change that. So if we want to have a higher libido or if we want to, you know, I guess manage our libido in a certain way, there's things that we can do to work with that. For a person with lower libido, I would say that there's sort of like a few factors that contribute to this, right? And, and that would be like the way that we've learned about sex, our sex negative messaging, which has not really encouraged or promoted desire, particularly in those socialized as women. So, you know, People who, who identify and have a lower libido often don't have a libido as low as they maybe think that they do or that they're presenting with if they actually challenge or unpack some of the negative messaging that they have about sex, sometimes really, really ingrained stuff. And if they were sort of to, able to unpack and sort of unlearn and relearn sex in the way that is more positive in a way that they maybe believe it to be now, not what was told to them when they were you know, 14 years old, then actually the libido can shift organically. What's an example of that negative messaging? So I can give an, actually, when I was in school, and this is probably, this is pretty, uh, I've heard a lot of people sort of describe this, but I, I recall really vividly when I was in school, a girl in my class saying that she masturbated and it became like gossip of the school um, she got bullied. It became this big thing, right? And so for me, and I mean, I've worked, you know, I've been working in this industry. I talk about sex and masturbation every day. But even for me, there's this thing about when I hear the word masturbation, it just really reminds me of that. It's that really ingrained masturbation is bad. Don't tell anyone you do it or don't do it. And so, you know, there are so many messages that we have received that are similar to that. And I think, you know, cultural and religious messaging, don't have sex or penetrative sex is the only type of sex. If you have sex, you'll get an STI. I mean, we grew up in like an STI focused sex education. That's really the only thing that we got. So, you know, these messages are not sex can be fun and playful and explorative and really pleasurable. It was Sex can be bad, it can cause illness and disease and, you know, experiencing pleasure for a woman or solo touch is a dirty thing to do. And so when we grow up and, and we have 
those messages, even though we don't believe them, like, sure, there's no way that I believe, you know, the experiences of what I learned about masturbation when I was 14 years old. But it, you know, the rivers run deep. There's part of it that sort of is there, like in this unconscious way. And so a lot of the work with libido and desire and learning about ourselves is identifying what some of those like deep, like unconscious messages were that we received about sex and like rewriting them. Like, what is it that I now know to be true and practicing those new ways of thinking about sex? And, you know, I think we're progressing in terms of being able to have conversations about sex, like things like this, you know, having really, really good conversations about sex. There's still a lot of um, stifling of sex conversation and sex education that's happening, you know, like on social media, banning certain words and sex education in school is still not pleasure focused. It's not focused on like, this is how arousal works and this is what pleasure is. It's still very much reproduction, STI, you know, pregnancy focused. Yeah. And I think I was telling you this at the event that I saw you at, but even Google will Google will set penalties on our website, Women's Health, when we write sexual health content because it's deemed to be explicit content, which is not the case. It's just we just need to talk about sex more, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm not sure if it was you or maybe someone else who meant who said like, oh, I'm noticing that uh, articles are not, you know, they're not really using the terminology or they're not really going in depth about it. And it really probably is because of that. We don't want to get blocked and banned and and on my social media page, I'm really mindful of the content and the words, which is really frustrating (laughs) Um, when you're trying to provide sex education, pleasure positive, you know, information to people that you have to be sort of tiptoeing around anatomy because we don't want to get blocked and then not be able to, you know, provide education to anyone. Yeah. And especially because we're encouraging people to speak more openly about it but then we can't necessarily on social media and online. Exactly. So, you know, while while we're going, yes, 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 we're okay to talk about it now. We're like, we're sexually empowered and we're free. There are a lot of unconscious messages about things that are being blocked and things that we can't access that tell us otherwise. Okay. So back to the person who then has what's considered the higher libido, how do they approach this in their relationship? Yeah. So I suppose there's like a couple of key things. Firstly, as I said before, if the narrative in the relationship is the high libido person has the correct libido, then there's a, there's a need to challenge that of like, well, what if I said your libido is too high and that actually your partner's libido is the right libido? I'm like, oh, like thrown a little bit on their heads when I ask that question, uh, you know, and obviously approaching it in a certain way. But for the person with the high libido, understanding that putting pressure on your partner to have sex is going to have the opposite effect, right? The more pressure that someone feels, whether they have a lower libido or not, the more pressure we feel to do anything that's not our choice, the more we're going to resist it. So if we are a person with a high libido and we, tr- and we think, oh, it'd be great to have sex a couple of times a week, but my partner always says no, so I'll just ask every day. And that's really common. I'll just try it every single day and then maybe two times a week it will happen versus considering, okay, well, if I'm trying every day, then my partner's probably more likely to say no every day because they feel pressure when we get into bed every night that that's what I'm going to ask. So taking a step back for the high libido person, not discounting their own libido, but taking a step back from putting any pressure on their partner to engage in intimacy and really 
understanding that they are responsible. Like each person is responsible for their own pleasure. So, you know, for a person with a higher libido, they have hands or they have aids. They have ways of satisfying their desires and their libido to an extent. I'm not saying, you know, you do everything solo and you never need your partner, but the mentality of a lot of people in relationship is, cool, I have a partner now, so they fulfill all of my sexual needs. And firstly, it's not true. (laughs) Um, Our partner is not responsible for that for us. We are responsible for that for ourselves. And secondly, like if we sort of put all that pressure on our partner, if you need to fulfill all of my sexual needs, then that partner is probably going to be feel a lot of pressure and feel quite resistant to that. So, you know, acknowledging for that higher libido partner, especially if they're actively working on, you know, say their lower libido partner is actively going, okay, I'm going to really explore my libido and I'm going to try and find ways to organically increase my libido, then that high libido person going, I'm going to take a step back and actually let my partner do their thing for a bit, you know, and that's not turning away from the relationship, but it's maybe not initiating sex every single day. I guess the other thing is identifying ways that you can connect that might still be sexual, but might not be all the bells and whistles, right? Like a a really common narrative around sex is that when a partner initiates that it's going to be, you know, X, Y, Z for 45 minutes and it's going to be penetrative sex to ejaculation and orgasm. And sometimes that can be a lot of effort, a lot of energy, um, and we might not have that. So, you know, when we're working with differing libidos, it's thinking about in an interaction, what actually is possible here? What can we both say yes to? So the lower libido partner might say, I absolutely like cannot have penetrative sex. It's my body, you know, there's, there's a whole range of things that are involved in that that might not feel accessible to them. But having a shower together and having a little touch in the shower might be accessible. Or a mutual masturbation or using a toy on themselves or their partner, or, you know, a one-way touch experience or lazy touching, you know, like sex doesn't have to be follow this linear process every single time. And if we make sex more accessible or intimacy more accessible by saying, we don't need to be doing all of these things, but let's see, can we say yes to one thing? It's really about questioning all these assumptions that we have about sex. That's what it sounds like from what you've said so far. Yeah. And it makes me think, you know, how you're talking about these unconscious beliefs that we have about masturbation. Do you think one of them is that you don't masturbate if you're in a relationship? Absolutely. It's like, well, why? I don't need to do that now because I'm in a relationship. And, and I think, you know, on the contrary, I also see clients who feel guilt over masturbating when in a relationship especially if maybe they're not having a whole lot of sex, you know, and there is a lot of um, education that comes into this. It's actually really healthy to have your own sexual experiences as as an individual person, irrespective of whether you're in a relationship or not, whether you're having sex or not, you know, like the things that we can explore and can learn about ourselves in terms of eroticism, fantasy, physical touch when we are alone is really important and really useful information to then bring into the relationship you have with someone else to be able to incorporate those things and make sex even better in that partnership. But it goes back to what you mentioned earlier about how we kind of expect our partners to be responsible for our um, pleasure it's almost like my slogan, really, like you are responsible for your own pleasure. And it really shocks 
people because they kind of then think like, wait, so my partner doesn't have to focus on my pleasure. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what it means. What it means is like you have to take some responsibility for it. Your partner can't read your mind. So you need to be able to explain or explore, express what you want, what gives you the most pleasure. And then your partner can support you in that. But you ultimately are responsible. And if you're on your own, if you're a person who has a really high libido and your partner is not like at that same level, then you have things that you can do to support your own libido. Yeah, there are so many great toys out at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) For any person with any genitals, there's so much. And there's so much, you know, we touched before on sort of different types of pornography or audio erotica or, you know, any of these things, reading um, erotic novels. Like there's so many ways that we can as individuals satisfy ourselves sexually. And then when we have sex with a partner, there's this different motivation there, right, which is like connecting fun, play, as well as pleasure, but it's not just orgasm, right? Which I think when we think about high libido for people who say, well, I just need to have more sex. It's like they probably need, what they're saying is they probably need to have more orgasms. And, you know, we can do that in in so many different ways. How about for people who have trouble orgasming? What are some things for them to consider or start exploring? So orgasm is like involuntary contractions, right? So in order to have an orgasm, we need to be in a space like both in our minds and in our bodies to lose control, right? And we might lose, an orgasm might last somewhere from five seconds to 50 seconds. But in that time, we have a loss of control over our brain, over our body, over our noises, over our movements, you know, and for people who have difficulty orgasming, often there is a brain association there, right? So people who might feel um, uncomfortable to fully lose control or maybe a bit fearful of losing control and particularly with a partner or with someone else there. So, you know, identifying maybe whether that might be a barrier for you if you are struggling to have an orgasm. And I think it's, it's not just about sex. Often it, it sort of filters over into your everyday life. I notice that people who need, you know, a lot of things to be in their control in their life, that they struggle to really be present in the moment sexually or to be able to have an orgasm because it requires that loss of control. And that can be really scary um, for certain people. So, you know, with that difficulty to orgasm, there's sort of the physical component of, well, what is it that I actually need to maximize my pleasure? And then how can I feel safe Um, in the environment that I'm in, that if I lose control, nothing terrible is going to happen. And I guess this is where someone like you can come in as a sex therapist to help guide that person to find out what what these things are. Exactly. Yeah. You can sort of almost start to like unpack some of these things just off of, you know, this conversation or listening to a podcast like this. But yeah, certainly like if you're feeling that you're sort of getting a bit stuck, reaching out to a sex therapist could be a really useful way to, to really start to explore and sort of question some of those things and unpack and also, yeah, maybe like challenging some of those behaviors. One other thing that you help people with in your clinic is um, painful sex. Now, can you tell me a bit about what may cause this and how you help people through? 
Painful sex typically, like there's a number of different reasons or, or I guess things that could be contributing to pain with sex. But generally speaking, we'd be talking about our pelvic floor and the tension within our pelvic floor, which can actually make penetration painful for some people. It can also, uh, for a penis owner, it can also um, having a tight pelvic floor can contribute to things like erection and ejaculation control issues. So it can, and it can also relate to pain um, for penis owners as well. But typically when we work with sexual pain, it, it tends to be um, penetrative pain. And some of the reasons why this might happen, I mean, pelvic tightness, like we're all sitting all day, we're all stressed, um, we're all overwhelmed, you know, there's so much happening and we hold tension in our jaw and our pelvic floor. So when we're feeling stressed and overwhelmed with everything in life, we tend to hold on to it, yeah, either in our jaw or in our pelvis. And off the back of that can, you know, result in some really, really tight muscles there and some difficulty um, in being able to relax and release those muscles. That would be, I guess, sort of your lay person, like your everyday person um, who might be experiencing sexual pain. There are some like specific reasons why sexual pain might exist for a person like trauma, for example. So if they've experienced a sexual trauma, that can cause a tightening of that area for, you know, self-protection reasons post-childbirth or even during pregnancy because our pelvis is moving a lot can sort of upset the balance that maybe we might once have had. And then other sort of issues as well. So things like endometriosis, skin conditions like um, eczema, psoriasis, lichen sclerosis. Um, There's a whole range of different reasons why someone might experience sexual pain. And to the second part of your question, um, how do we work with it? So I really often when it comes to sexual pain, like to work in tandem with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. So a pelvic floor physiotherapist can actually do a physical examination so they can assess the tension in the pelvic floor. They can assess for things like skin conditions, inflammation, uh, obviously can refer on to people who might be able to assess for endometriosis if that seems to be something that could be possible for that person. Um, And they can really give a great assessment of, you know, what it is that might be happening and contributing to sexual pain. And then, you know, I guess sort of staying in contact with that pelvic floor physio is really useful if um, working in tandem with them with sex therapy, because there's so much around sex education. I mean, this kind of goes back to the whole, you know, inbuilt sex negative culture. Um, if we're told our whole lives we not to have sex or that sex is going to cause illness, disease or pregnancy, then we tend to be a little bit tense and nervous about it, which can then sort of perpetuate into some painful sex or sexual pain disorders. So I guess from a therapeutic perspective, education being really key teaching sort of relaxation. So like diaphragmatic breathing, stretches, yoga is really great for people who have tight pelvic floor and also working with a partner if they're in a relationship to identify, okay, what are the points where sex becomes painful and let's work around those. Because I guess like number one piece of advice, if something hurts, stop doing it. Very true. It it just makes me think like with hardcore porn has the opposite message. Totally. I mean, unless the pain is consensual and it's what you want. But in this context, we're talking about sort of like unwanted pain with sex. And 
What's interesting is I think the narrative around sexual pain, and especially if you sort of do a bit of a Google search around it, is it often says like that the most common thing that sexual pain is caused by is trauma. And, you know, so people think like, oh, okay, well, I haven't experienced a sexual trauma, but I have this pain. So there's something wrong with my body or, you know, it, it sort of um, starts this negative narrative. But the reality is, and in my experience, most of the time it is caused from, for whatever reason, maybe you weren't aroused enough, maybe you were nervous, you know, something was happening with your pelvic floor at that time, you had a painful sexual experience, you ignored it or you thought whatever and then you tried again and again and again and again and again and again and it hurts every time because when it hurts the first time you're probably more anxious the next time so you're going to be tensing that pelvic floor a bit more so what I see is often a gradual increase in the anxiety symptoms which increases the pelvic floor pain and the sexual pain over time Um, and it may be fully consensual sexual experiences but if it hurts then we're going to be bracing for it the next time right we're going to build up this sort of association with sex and pain in our brain which then makes matters worse and I see clients who are like oh yeah I've been having painful sex for five years with my partner and each time they have sex they're just building a new neural pathway to say yep correct sex hurts whereas if we acknowledge okay this is hurting me a little bit today let's move to something that doesn't hurt. Let's find something that feels better for, for both me and my partner or, you know, whoever is involved. We're still associating sex and intimacy with pleasure and fun. And then maybe we're seeking out support of a pelvic floor physio or a sex therapist to investigate further what might be happening. Well, thank you so much for this chat today. It's been really insightful. Um, I was just wondering if you could leave our listeners with one thing they could do to get more pleasure in their life today. What would that be? I was actually thinking about the uh, phrase guilty pleasure like yesterday or maybe it was even this morning and how socially we've been sort of like built to think that to have pleasure is guilty. And so you're right when you ask a question like how can we have more pleasure is firstly acknowledging that we deserve pleasure. Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Pleasure is our birthright. No matter who you are, where you're from, or what your body looks like, or what genitals you have, like we are, we deserve pleasure. Like the world is here for pleasure. Our clitorises are for pleasure. But to answer your question, one thing that we could do to increase our pleasure is to Take a moment or even if it's just a minute or a couple of minutes of your day to day or of at some point this week and, you know, stop and smell the roses, so to speak. Really enjoy that cup of tea that you're having or spend an extra couple of minutes in that shower and really notice like present mindfully paying attention to the water falling down your body or you know the warmth that you have in that furry blanket that you've wrapped yourself in right like we don't need to assign and dedicate hours and hours to pleasure to start to bring attention and awareness to pleasure and that's really key in when it comes to sex and sexuality as well as like being present and mindful with all of the sensations This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted and produced by me, Lisa Gebulagen, with additional sound editing by Abby Williams. For more from us, pick up a copy of our latest issue with Jacinta Franklin on the cover. Find it on newsstands or digitally via Apple News Plus. Visit us on womenshealth.com.au and follow us on Instagram at womenshealthaus. Thanks for listening.